0: Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Well, as you read through the Old Testament, even the most casual of readers will notice that Israel had gone through several periods of favor with God followed by displeasure. Kings are prime examples of that, beginning with Saul and then going all the way through the captivity. In 400 years, Israel had gone through over 40 kings And one queen. Through it all, less than 20% were considered good times. But when the Bible describes these good times and bad times, the emphasis is not so much on the people, but instead on the kings. Because it was the kings who bore the ultimate responsibility for the behavior of Israel. They were the mediators for the people. Prior to the kings, the Bible says in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so God then appointed kings. Men designed to mediate and to carry out God's covenants with his people. But these kings more often than not fell into sin, idolatry, apostasy, and even defection. But the sad reality is, is the impact that it had on the people of Israel. Because the leaders were wicked and disobedient, the people would never rise above that. The character of the people became the reflection then of the kings, or as Hosea puts it, like people like priests. Weak leadership produces weak people. And by the time you get to the New Testament, You're left with a skeleton of what spiritual leaders ought to be. First century leadership was nothing more than a cult of money-hungry, works-righteous legalists. The conduit that God had designed to reach the world was godly leadership, setting the example for godly believers, and Israel had failed miserably. Fast forward now to the church age. Instead of kings, we have pastors. And although it is not a monarchy, elders and pastors are charged to rule over the church. But instead of ruling unilaterally as a king, elders are to rule by how they live and by what they teach. And both of those truths are brought out in our text this morning. I'm going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to that. And then stand with me as I read that text together. Paul writes this. He says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, "...except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility... For the sins of others, keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them into judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. You can have a seat. You know, we've been reminded many, many times in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy what the purpose of this letter is, and so I'll just read that to remind you. Paul says this, "...so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth." The church, then, is to be the model of truth and virtue, not only within the church, but to the watching world as well. The implications of that are no better seen than through what has been uncovered within several SBC churches. Sexual abuse, cover-ups, even the dismissal of credible events and witnesses. Now, no doubt this has gone on and will continue to go on in all denominations, but it doesn't lessen the excusability of this but because we are the largest protestant denomination over 47,000 churches we will garner the most attention now regardless of where you land on this issue or any other concerns you may have about the SBC let me just let me just boil this down to a common denominator and it's this it's leadership it's leadership The church of Jesus Christ will advance or retreat based on its leadership. Yeah, I know Jesus said, I will, he said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it, will not overcome it. But what a much more pleasant ride it would be would chosen by the churches were men of highest integrity. Amen? The process of choosing these men is methodical. It's slow. It's a careful process. And thankfully, it's laid out for us in the scriptures. God, through Paul, has given us a blueprint for the selection of godly leadership. And a month or so ago, Joshua led us, did a wonderful job of walking us through that back in chapter 3. And by the way, if you weren't here for that, for that mini-series, essentially that's what it was, I encourage you to go to the website and listen to those messages. The problems facing the SBC are not denominational problems. It's not even about institutions or seminaries per se. The problem, it's leadership. Clearly, not everyone, but the root of our current problems can all be traced back to pastors and elders, leaders within the church. And so the passage then before us this morning looks at not the qualifications from chapter 3, but rather how to protect the office of elder. This is, this is not a way to, to insulate elders from accusations, to make it so that they're sort of the untouchables in the church. In fact, just the opposite. It provides, actually, a biblical pathway, a roadmap towards recognizing the faithful and calling out those who aren't. But it actually goes beyond that. It goes to the root of the matter how to choose these men. Not the qualifications, but the process. This is gonna be a most helpful passage for all of us because, church, it's you who makes the final affirmation of who serves at this church. This passage should be important to everyone in this congregation because leadership matters. It matters. Your spiritual growth is largely directed by those you affirm as elders and deacons. Just look at the example of Israel. So although this is a passage about elders, this is not a time to tune out. This is important to everyone in the congregation. One of the best ways for you to grow in your walk with the Lord is to choose leadership that constantly points you to Christ and to his word. And as I stated just a moment ago, the purpose of this letter was to show Timothy and the church how they ought to behave towards one another and within the church. And one of those ways begins with the selection of qualified and godly men as elders and deacons. Evidently, this was a problem in the church, that Timothy was pastoring, some were not qualified, particularly in this area of teaching because Paul tells Timothy in chapter one, he says, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And then Paul names names. He calls out a couple of names in particular, Hymenaeus and Alexander, two false teachers that Paul had to personally remove from the church. It's possible that these two men introduced and supported the unbiblical role of women who were teaching during the weekly gathering of worship. And so he addressed that in chapter 2. And then he moved into chapter 3, which nicely fits, because now we have the qualifications for those who are in leadership position, those who aspire to the office of elder, those who would serve as deacons. And then chapter 4 continues the warning to beware of these false teachers, these teachers who teach false doctrine, the the doctrine that originates from the pit of hell. He describes them as hypocrites and liars, men who taught that godliness was through the the denial of things like certain foods and even marriage. Paul knew that the task would not be an easy one for Timothy Timothy had age against him. He was much younger than these unfit pastors. And it was this lack of respect and lack of credibility that made his efforts at reform particularly difficult. And so Paul then, Paul, his advice was simple and yet it was so practical. In chapter 4 he says this, number 1 in verse 13, Keep on teaching, keep on exhorting, he says. Don't stop. In verse 14, he says, Timothy, this is your gift. Use this gift. This gift has been affirmed by the church. And then thirdly, in verses 15 and 16, he says, be diligent in your doctrine and in your life. Win them with that. Show them. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, he says, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. And then he gives them a warning. In his zeal, in his zeal to sort of right the wrongs, Paul says, Timothy, don't be disrespectful to those who are older than you, which in his case was basically everyone. And then then, as we saw last week, he reminds Timothy on how to care for true widows of the church. That brings us to today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide this into five sections. The first two I'm going to look at as commands, one positive, one negative. The, the last three are more like exhortations, which I guess in reality are commands also, but they just feel different than the first two do. So in my mind, that's how I've, that's how I've divided this up. So this is Paul. He is teaching this young pastor, Timothy, how to protect the pastors, but more specifically how to protect the office now it's probably worth stating this although I know you've heard this many many times pastoral ministry is not a one man ruling a congregation the biblical pattern of the church is a plurality of qualified and godly men charged by the Lord and the local congregation to do three things number one to feed them a steady diet of right doctrine to protect them from false doctrine, and to lead by example. Those are the marching orders for the leaders within the church. It's not a dictatorship. It's qualified men bringing together unique gifts to faithfully lead the church. And so because of that, no elder or pastor has more authority than another. You've heard this phrase said many times, they are one among equal. For example... In matters where voting is required, Joshua doesn't get two votes and Scott and I each get one vote. It's the same. Our responsibilities and giftedness varies, but there is no hierarchy within the eldership, within pastors in a church. Okay, so principle number one, honor those who labor. That's verses 17 and 18. Honor those who labor. Verse 17 says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, the key word here is honor, or specifically, double honor, double honor. Paul says certain elders are to be given double honor, and it's those who rule well. Now, I need to make this clear. Paul is not saying that some of your elders rule well, and some don't. That's not the point he's making. He's not, he's not contrasting good elders versus bad elders. He's assuming that within your body of elders, they're good. They're all good. But some rule and some rule well. The fact is, if you have bad elders at your church, they shouldn't be serving in the first place because they've disqualified themselves from serving. Those are the ones, by the way, that he speaks about later in verse 20, and we'll get to that here in just a few minutes. But the fact is, all elders and pastors in a church are to be honored. Now, that's not a new concept. This is throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians, for example, chapter 5 says this, but we request, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who, who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instructions and that you esteem them very highly in love because of your work. Live at peace with one another. Here Paul is speaking about the elders who labor among you. They are to be appreciated, he says. They're to be esteemed. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. We're to, be, we're to be mindful of them. And then down in verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So the idea then is that you are, you're to be mindful of your pastors. You're to obey them. You're to submit to them. You're to esteem them for their office. You're to, to use their words to appreciate them. And then here now in 1 Timothy you are to honor them honor all of them all of them but those who rule well by laboring in preaching and teaching are especially to be honored he says double honored the word honor to me is uh, it's a word that means what you think it means it means honor it means respect for example, if you, if you just go to the next chapter in 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. The idea then is respect, right? He's speaking about respect, esteem, allegiance. But it carries another idea with it as well. And it, it, it refers to remuneration, or wages, being paid for something. Again, if you, just, if you just remember from last week, it says, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 3, "...honor widows who are widows indeed." So we understand that. A widow is to be honored. There is to be respect. There is to be esteem for that. That makes complete sense. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and, and here's the key, Make some return for their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. This making of return, this is the idea of support. That's what he's getting at here with this. So they are to, they are to support them. We get our English word honorarium from that. Honorarium. So one of the ways we esteem speakers, guest speakers who come here to the church is we give them an honorarium. In other words, we pay them. We pay them. Now, the question always comes up is this if some are worthy of double wages, double honor, does that mean that all elders are worthy of wages? I already know what you're thinking. That's a pretty convenient text to justify paying all the elders. And it sounds a little self-serving, doesn't it? On the surface. So look, everyone agrees that the main preaching, teaching elder, uh, Joshua in our case, uh, is to be paid. And if he labors well, he is to be paid well. That's the idea of double honor. But there are other elders and pastors who, by their choice, have given the bulk of their life to ministry. In those cases, they are to be honored financially as well. Perfect example of that is Scott in our congregation. The bulk of what Scott does on a day-in, day-out basis is ministry-related, and so he is paid for that. He is to be honored, both in terms of respect and remuneration. And then there are some elders who support themselves outside the church. That's their choice as well. They don't require payment or honor in that sense. And I'm an example of that. I choose to support myself and my family through what most would consider to be secular work. It doesn't mean secular work is not ministry. That's a topic for another day. But you get the idea. So in my case, and in the case, honestly, of most elders, I don't require monetary honor. Now, I want, to give you an, I want to give you an illustration of this, because I think this is so helpful. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to how Paul walks, walks this congregation through this principle. He says this, beginning in verse 1. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So what's Paul doing here? He's establishing for this church his authority. And his authority is that he is an apostle. He's an apostle. And then he says this. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? You see what he's getting at here? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? That's ridiculous. You can't even imagine that. Why would a soldier go to war and then have a part-time job? His job is to be a soldier. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of the flock? I mean, some things are just automatic. You just automatically get paid for. That's the point that he's, that he's getting that, uh, that he's driving at here. And then he says this in verse 8. I am not speaking these things... According to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So now he's going to bring in the scriptures. And in particular, he's going to bring in the Old Testament. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's familiar, right? God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? You see his point? He's not talking about animals here. He's talking about paying the leaders within the congregation. He says, yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. This is that, this is that principle uh, that Deuteronomy 25 is teaching. And then he says in verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? Galatians 6 says the same thing. If others share the right over you, do we not more? This is a pretty airtight case that Paul is making for leaders, for elders, for pastors in the church to be paid for what they do. But, and you need to circle this, because he says, nevertheless... Nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? He's referring to priests, remember? And those who attend regularly to the altar have to share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel but verse 15 he says in conclusion i have used none of these things i am not writing these things so that it will be done for me in my case so here's what paul is saying paul is saying i have the right to be paid for what i do soldiers don't go to war and have jobs on the side that's absurd he's saying i should be paid for this but I choose not to. It's my choice. Nevertheless, he says, we did not use this right. So in this text, Paul is establishing the principle that elders and pastors have the right, his words, not mine, have the right to be paid for their ministry. But some will choose to support themselves outside of the ministry, and that's completely okay. So here's the point of all this. Number one, all elders are due honor, respect, and allegiance. That's all of them. And the church may choose to pay all of them or just some of them. Secondly, some may choose to support themselves outside the church. And thirdly, some are worthy of double honor, honor beyond respect, honor that supports them. So honor, the the term honor, the concept of honor is implied for all elders but double honor is for those who rule well which is defined by Paul as those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You with me on this? Okay. So Paul's point then, it's not about ruling. It's about ruling well. Those are the elders worthy of double honor. And by the way, Paul is not talking here about bonuses or gifts or other acts of grace towards uh, pastors and elders. Paul is saying they deserve it. They are worthy of it. Pay them well because they earned it. Can I give you just a personal note on this? As one of your elders, I said earlier, I, I do not expect or want to be paid. That's my choice. I'm content to earn my keep outside of this church. So hear me say this sermon is not a pretext for you to start paying me, okay? God is my witness on that. My conscience is clear. I have no qualms standing up here telling you everything I've said up to this point. But there are two elders in this church who are paid But I haven't been propped up here by them either to encourage you to give them raises. Okay? I think most of you know me well enough to know that when I teach or when I preach, I've got one agenda, and that is to get the text right, to be faithful to the Scriptures. And then Paul says in verse 18, which supports all of this, and I'll just be brief because we've already looked at this from Deuteronomy. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Again, Paul is quoting the Old Testament directly, actually, from Deuteronomy 25. It's a pretty obvious point, don't you think? When oxen are working, you allow them to eat. Why? Well, you don't want to starve them because they're actually producing for you. They're benefiting you. So Paul says, feed them while they're laboring for you because a laborer is worthy of his wages even if it's an ox. And here Paul quotes the scripture again and he says the laborer is worthy of his wages. But he's not quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from Luke. Luke, a New Testament writer. Paul in this one quote, Paul is affirming the authority of Luke's writing. By the way, the other time that Paul quotes from the Gospels, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you know who he quotes from? Luke. Luke. Now that shouldn't surprise us. These two were pretty close friends. Uh, Many times, as Luke was writing in the book of Acts, he would use this pronoun, we. We. Because Luke was with Paul. They were traveling companions. And so, The point that Paul is making is a simple one. If you would pay an ox to do its work, then pay your pastors to do theirs as well. So principle number one, honor those who labor, double honor for those who labor well. Number two, and these will be shorter, rebuke those who sin. Rebuke those who sin, second principle. That's verses 19 and 20. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. This is interesting, isn't it? This is a, this is a passage that's sort of like this two-edged sword. On one sense, you honor the elders but then, who are faithful, but then on the, other, on the other hand, you rebuke those who are unfaithful and who continue in sin. But before an elder is rebuked, the charges against him must be valid charges. They must be substantiated, and it requires, he says, the testimony of a minimum of two or three witnesses. Now, why would Paul require that? Well, from a practical standpoint, just think back on your own church experience. Was there ever a time when a pastor was accused of something usually by an overzealous deacon who thinks he rules the church. Listen, it doesn't take much to turn a congregation into a mob, does it? So Paul inserts this command designed to protect the elders against either false accusation or unsubstantiated claims. This is such an important statement that he makes because not only does this protect the the pastor from unfounded statements, listen, listen, It's for your benefit as well. It's for your benefit as a church. Because when elders can be falsely accused by simply anyone, the church becomes fractured, factions develop, sides are taken, and before you know it, unity is destroyed. All because of one person. Church, there is much wisdom in verse 19. It is literally a safety net for the church. Here's the practical side of this. If someone brings an accusation against one of us, Joshua, Scott, myself, it's likely going to be ignored. It's going to be ignored. That's what Paul said, wasn't it? Isn't that what he says? Paul says, don't receive it. Don't entertain the idea. Don't consider it to be true. Now you might be wondering, why would Paul tell Timothy this? Why would he he say this? Why would he say dismiss an accusation of sin against a leader in the church? Well, in the first place, that's not what he said. You're to dismiss it if only one person brings it. If it's two or three, that's another matter. And we're going to look at that here in just a minute. But the reason he makes this statement is because leaders are always, always, always under attack, especially when they preach and teach the truth. Or, as Paul said, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. They may perform their duties faithfully, and yet, as Calvin says, they cannot avoid a thousand criticisms. Amen to that. These are the men that our enemy, the devil, is coming after. If you have limited soldiers and limited resources, then your most effective strategy is to attack from the top down. You attack the leadership. If you do that in a war, the soldiers retreat. If you do it in a church, you have sheep without a shepherd. No protection, no guidance, no oversight. Accusations by a single individual are not to be entertained and they are not to be admitted into the conversation for the protection of the elder and the unity of the church. But what if there is a reasonable charge? What if there's a reasonable charge that's brought to the elders about another elder? Well, end of verse 19, he says, Then entertain it, then receive it, and you investigate it. Because the simple fact that you're an elder doesn't insulate you from valid accusations. All too often, leaders have hidden behind their position and their power. So why, why two or three? Well, it's biblical. We, we saw that. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You're saying, okay, that's the death penalty. We're not talking about that here, these two or three witnesses. Well, chapter 19 of Deuteronomy says this. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So it's not just the death penalty. This is any sin any iniquity. It requires two or three witnesses. This is the principle that Moses established thousands of years before. So Paul says that if you have a charge that's brought by two or three witnesses, Timothy, listen to it. Listen to it. Weigh it. Evaluate it. Don't dismiss it. I can't help but think, Had many of the pastors in the SBC who are accused of these cover-ups applied this simple principle, the woes within our denomination would be much less, at least on this issue anyway. It is the role of the elders to investigate any and all valid accusations brought against a fellow elder. It needs to be thorough as well. Because you're talking about the integrity and the reputation of a man and a church. This is why you choose men of the highest integrity in the first place. You want men who will confront sin and not cover it up. And if the accusations are found to be true, he's to be rebuked. This is where it may get a little confusing. He says those who continue to sin... So the idea is this is ongoing sin, right? That implies that he, he was likely confronted beforehand, but refused to repent. So that raises a couple of questions. Number one, what kind of sin are we talking about here? What kind of sin would this, would this be? Well, to start with, any sin that violates the qualifications of chapter 3, three would fit into that. It's not. Uh, it's, uh, the point is it's not simply isolated occurrences, but instead it's, it's unrepentant, ongoing sin. And so anything that's a violation from chapter 3 would qualify to that. So for example, in chapter 3, Paul says uh, um, an overseer is to be gentle. He's to be gentle. So we don't openly rebuke an elder if he raises his voice or says something harsh to someone. We may pull him aside and make a a comment to him about that, but we don't openly rebuke him unless it becomes a pattern of unrepentant sin. He refuses to change from that. And the same would be true for other qualifications mentioned, temperance, prudence. The list goes on. But there are some sins, some sins, it only takes one. For example, adultery, embezzlement, deception. Those kinds of sins would seem to be weightier and more serious when it comes to his reputation and integrity. And then the second question from this is, when an elder is rebuked, is it always to be public? Do we rebuke all sins or is it just... Certain sins. And what if he repents? Well, I think, I think we can say what's, what's oftentimes been said before when it comes to rebuke. For private sins, the rebuke is to be private. For public sins, the rebuke is to be public. Which, by the way, is consistent with what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. If a brother sins, you are to do what? Go to him, how? Privately. Privately, it says. If he does not repent, take two or three and confront him again. If he continues in unrepentance, tell the church. In other words, what? Public rebuke. Public rebuke. And so public rebuke to an elder are for, are for either unrepentant sin or sins of a moral nature that would immediately disqualify them from leadership. And then Paul gives Timothy the reason for it, the end of verse 20, so that, he says, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. Now you may not be aware of this, but as recent as 100 years ago, public hangings were not all that uncommon. Illinois' last hanging was in 1928. They don't have the record. The state of Washington has the record for the most recent hanging, 1996, less than 30 years ago. People were publicly hung because it served as a deterrent for would-be criminals. Now, I am not suggesting that elders be taken out back and publicly hung even for the most grievous of sins. It's not what I'm saying here at all. But public rebukes serve to cause fear in everyone who sees it and everyone who hears it. Remember the story in Acts 5? Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this couple who sold a piece of land? And they sold it with the intent of bringing the proceeds to the church to be used for the church. The problem was they kept some back. Well, actually, the problem wasn't they kept it back. The problem was that they lied that they were keeping it back. It's fine that they kept it back. They just didn't tell anyone. They told everyone that... We're giving it all. And so in Acts chapter 5 verse 5, after Peter tells, them, tells him, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, it says, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. He's at the altar. He's at the front of the church and he falls down, drops dead for lying. And then the understatement of all understatements and great fear came over all who heard it. I think so. That story's not over. Three hours later, who shows up? His wife. I have no idea where she was. Why is she gone for three hours? Does it take that long to put makeup on? I don't think so. Regardless, she shows up. She's three hours late for the service. It is interesting though, they're still having the service. It's three hours later. Anyway, she shows up, she shows up for this service, same scenario, same question to her, same answer she gives as her husband. They'd probably practiced this before. So she gives the same answer, and guess what happens to her? Same thing. She drops dead right in front of the altar, and the deacons drag her out, and they bury her that day. And verse 11 says this, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things." So this message of you better not sin against God went not just within the church, outside the church. It went everywhere. I mean, if that happens in a church, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure I want to join that church because if if I sin, if I lie about anything, I might just die at, at that moment. And so public chastening, public rebuke, has this deterring effect on those who witness it. It serves as a warning for for everyone that if you sin in a similar way, this may happen to you as well. But this instruction is not directed to the congregation. This is a warning for who? For the elders, This is for the elders. It is a reminder to the pastors of the church that if you continue in sin or sin in a disqualifying way, the other pastors will publicly charge you, they will reprimand you, and they will remove you from leadership. Not in some secret closed-door meeting where a pastor can quietly step down and leave town. That happens more times than not. But instead, they are to be openly rebuked. Some might say, doesn't that seem a little over the top? Not if you're trying to make a point. And Paul is making a point. What is the point that he's making? It's this, that the calling of an elder or a pastor or overseer or shepherd, choose your term, is a high calling. And it's not for everyone. It is a public call to godliness in your living and in your teaching. And in this calling, your elders here at Second Baptist Church, we realize that we are accountable to you all. But it goes beyond that. We are accountable to all authority in heaven Isn't that what verse 21 says? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his holy angels. Where is that? That's heaven. Paul is pressing on Timothy the weight of this office, the sacredness of this office. So how do you protect the office of pastor? Number one, you honor the elders who labor in the word. Secondly, you rebuke those who are sinning. Thirdly, Thirdly, we must be impartial in our judgment, impartial in our judgment. These verses, 21 through the end of the chapter, they sort of feel like wisdom literature to me. I mean, I think they would almost fit into the book of Proverbs. They just, they have that feel to me. Um, So he says we're, we're to be impartial. Again, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, and his chosen angels to maintain these principles. What principles? Well, the ones that he just taught in verses 17 through 20. Maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. In other words, you're to apply these principles of honoring and rebuking, but you're not to do it with bias and you're not to do it with partiality without bias. means to judge before. Just prejudice. That's, That's the word, prejudice, to show prejudice. It's the idea of assuming either guilt or innocence without having all the facts. Well, you can see the danger here, right? To prejudge guilt can cause great harm to a man's reputation. It would be foolish to rush into this too quickly, but the same can be said for prejudging innocence. When a man is Prematurely deemed innocent, you lessen the severity of the charge, which may result in acquittal or at worst, cover up. Honoring and rebuking are to be done with accuracy and without bias, but he says it's also to be done with impartiality. Our tendency is to give the benefit of the doubt, and in principle, That's a good thing. But when we minimize or disregard clear facts simply on the basis that they're an elder, then we've crossed over the line. No matter how gifted, no matter how popular they are, we are never to show partiality or bias, especially towards our leaders. They are not to receive preferential treatment. When sinning elders are shown special treatment, The work is set in motion to tolerate sin. Jesus said to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray. Listen, if leaders and pastors are shown favoritism, they will often tolerate certain sins because of that. And some of the most frightening words a church could ever hear from the Lord is this, I have this against you. So, this is a very weighty command. These are not simple warnings. Paul says, I solemnly charge you. He is invoking his apostleship. Timothy, he says, I am charging you with all the authority of, the, uh, of an apostle. And how much authority is that? It's all the authority of heaven in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of holy angels, he says. John Stott says it this way. He speaks in the sight of God, who does not show favoritism, and of Christ Jesus, the future judge of all earthly judges, and of the elect angels, the faithful, as opposed to the fallen. This, this is a command that originates from the very throne of heaven. It carries the authority of the Godhead from heaven, and of Paul, an apostle of Christ. And so to violate this principle is to reject apostolic authority, trinitarian sovereignty, and angelic precedence it's of the highest magnitude it's to go against the highest of earthly and heavenly authorities and so we protect the office of the pastor then um, and men of that office by by not showing partiality when it comes to honoring or rebuking fourthly we are to be measured in our appointments measured in our appointments. Verse, verses 22 and 23. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. This verse carries such practical wisdom. So what, what's he referring to here when he says lay hands on? Well, if you just go back a chapter, chapter 4... Paul says this in verse 14, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Laying on of hands was a common way to commission leaders. In the Old Testament, it says in Numbers 27, The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Acts chapter 6, we see men commissioned as deacons, and it says in verse 6, And these were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Later in Acts 13, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. So clearly, Paul has in mind here the commissioning or the setting apart of elders. It's a a symbolic way of granting authority to them. Paul says, don't lay your hands hands on anyone. He doesn't doesn't mean any Christian without exception. He's not talking about that. He's referring to elders, elder candidates specifically. You aren't to lay hands on on elder candidates too hastily so how do you know when it's too soon well i don't have a magic answer for you on that one and i don't think there is a magic answer but let me just tell you this let me let me just tell you our process just briefly how it works at second baptist it begins with the elders who begin to pray about either for god to show us a man or to affirm someone that we've had on our minds and so we begin to pray about that and we take some time praying about that not just that day but maybe for weeks begin to pray about it and then we gather again and talk and pray and we we if, if we're in agreement on this person then we contact we make a contact with that person and see if they even have the desire Remember chapter 3, verse 1, if any man aspires to the office? Red flags are flying everywhere if you ask someone to do this, and they give you every reason in the world why they don't want to serve. So they must aspire to that office. And then thirdly, they fill out a questionnaire. 30, 40 questions. The infamous questionnaire, right, Scott? (laughs) Yeah. And it's not just like, hey, tell us about your family uh, where did you grow up? These are some pretty deep questions. They're theological questions. We want to know where this person is in their theology, what their understanding is. And so they spend several weeks answering that question, to, answering these questions to any like they, they desire. It could be two, two sentences. It could be a page and a half. And they answer those questions. And then once they do and they submit those to us, then the current elders, we go over those questions every question every question and if we have questions about their answers we invite them in and we say hey explain this to us We're, I'm not really sure we understand this and so we do that and then once once that's done then we interview the spouse we bring the spouse in on this do you think he's qualified to be an elder do you see that in the home do you see that in your married life and in some cases we might even ask the kids if the kids are old enough if they're Christians we might ask them their pain that's dangerous ground I know You know, you're asking your teenage kids, what do you think of your dad? You know, that's not always a good time to ask them. But anyway, you get you get the idea of that. So we we interview them. And then at that point, that man is presented to the church, where you all then have 30 days to do your examining of this person and your asking of questions to them. And only then do we lay hands on that man thirty days after that. But you know what? Even that is no guarantee that you're not going to get an elder who sins to the, to the degree that he disqualifies himself. But listen, church, you would be surprised. You would be shocked at the process that some churches have in appointing elders. It is, In many cases, it's nothing more than a popularity contest. It's like voting for prom queen in high school. Oftentimes it's successful businessmen, it's CEO types. But Paul tells Timothy here, don't get in a hurry to appoint elders because if you do and they turn out to be unqualified, you bear responsibility for their sins in some sense. In what way? Well, they were put in that position because you didn't do your homework. You didn't do your homework. And although the elders share the major responsibility for this, listen, as a church, you bear that responsibility as well. Did I just get your attention? You bear the responsibility of who your leaders are, the good ones and the ones that prove not so good. You bear that responsibility. We are not an elder-ruled church. Decisions like this are not made without your input. Second Baptist is an elder-led church with congregational involvement. We all share in this task of appointing um, leaders and elders within this church. I'm sure the last thing that any of us would want on our conscience is the guilt of pushing someone forward as an elder candidate too quickly. And so he tells Timothy, if you'll not do this, it'll keep you from sin. It'll keep you from sin. I don't think he has in mind here that Timothy was going to somehow fall into that same sin. I think he's speaking really just metaphorically. And the reality is that if elders push a candidate through too hastily and he proves to be unqualified, The respect of the elders from the congregation is tainted. It makes it harder for the congregation to trust their decisions if they aren't cautious and orderly in who they appoint as elders. And then we get to verse 23. No longer drink wine, excuse me, no longer drink water exclusively but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I have to tell you, for years, that verse was the most difficult verse in this entire letter for me. I mean, I, I, I could not figure where this verse was coming from. Why in the world does Paul drop this verse in the middle of such an important section like leadership? It doesn't seem to have a connection. What does drinking wine and stomach ailments have to do with protecting the office of a pastor? It doesn't seem connected, does it? It just seems like an afterthought, like Paul just threw that in, oh, by the way. Well I think if we take a closer look at this we're going to see the answer and in reality I don't think it's that difficult if we just look at this in the context and I think the key is really the last phrase in verse 22 where he says, keep yourself free from sin. Now remember back in chapter 4, false teachers in this church, they were teaching asceticism, this denial of certain things. This was the high road to God if you deny yourself. It says in verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocated abstaining from foods. So evidently Timothy was a teetotaler by choice. He, He knew that wine in small amounts was okay, but in order to sort of fit in, he abstained from wine, even at the detriment of his own health. In the first century, wine was considered medicinal in small amounts, oftentimes being prescribed for things like indigestion, although I suspect what Timothy's problems were were not simple cases of indigestion. Paul is saying this, Timothy, don't add unnecessary and undue restrictions, especially if it's going to affect your health. Because the qualifications for elders of not being addicted to wine doesn't mean you have to be a teetotaler. Not necessarily. Timothy had chosen not to exercise his Christian liberty by abstaining from wine. That's admirable, for sure. Timothy was clearly a man of convictions, doing what it took, whatever it took, in fact, for the sake of the church. Boy, if more leaders would do that... He was willing to become all things to all men, right? Even if it meant that he would suffer, which he did. So Paul reminds him that keeping yourself free from sin doesn't mean you have to abstain. Perhaps Timothy was was confused by that. So I I think it makes sense to understand this in light of verse 22. Keep yourself pure, Timothy, but in order to do so, don't adopt these extreme asceticisms of these false teachers i think that's the idea so how can a church then protect the office of elder and pastor number one honoring those who labor at preaching and teaching giving double honor but on the flip side publicly rebuke those who continue in sin thirdly be impartial in your judgments don't show prejudice and then pace yourself and be cautious in who you appoint. And then lastly, number five, and I'll be brief with this, discerning in your vetting. We must be discerning in our vetting of these men, verses 24 and 25. Listen to how he writes this. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Did you notice the parallels in those two verses? Verse 24 begins with the sins of some are evident. Verse 25 says the deeds, uh, good deeds are evident as well. So there's a pattern here. At the end of verse 24, some sins follow the person. Verse 25, some good deeds follow that person as well. They show up later. So there's, there's a structure here to these two verses. But really, more important than that is just the reminder of this. So let me just make a, f- a few comments. And this is going to be pretty I think self-evident what Paul's, what Paul's point is. These last two verses, I think, really, are the application of verse 22. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily. And here's the reason why. Verses 24 and 25. The sins of some are obvious to everyone. It's not hard to see that certain men are not qualified. That's the beginning of verse 24. but in the same way good deeds are obvious some men not only exhibit the qualifications for the office but they are currently ministering and serving within the church just without the title but there are there may be certain deeds that don't show up right away good deeds for those good deeds Paul says they're not going to be concealed forever but be patient be patient they will show up. Sooner, if not later, they will become evident. On the other hand though, some sins aren't evident at first either. They could be things like anger, poor management of of a household. Those would never never be seen on a Sunday morning. And even if you spent a little time once or twice at, at at a person's home, a family's home, you might never see that either. Some sins don't show up for a while. But church, there is a principle at play here in these verses. MacArthur says it this way. Time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth will come out. It'll be evident. It'll become evident. Whether we're talking about hidden or secret sins which follow them, or good deeds that Paul says cannot be concealed but it requires patience and it requires discernment. This is wise counsel that Paul has given to his young protege. So church, the office of elder and pastor, it's a sacred office. Sacred in the sense that it will largely determine how you grow spiritually. This is why Paul labored so hard to lay out for us what qualifies men to be elders and their ministries and what they're to look like. So let me close with just a quote here from English Anglican John Stott. So Timothy would need discernment. It is the iceberg principle, namely that nine-tenths of the person are hidden from view. This is why Timothy must give himself time in which to form an accurate assessment of people's character. Attractive personalities often have hidden weaknesses, whereas unprepossessing people often have hidden strengths. Timothy must learn to discern between the seen and the unseen, the surface and the depths, the appearance and the reality. The instruction is to Timothy, but this is a collective effort. Every one of us, Every one of us, the elders and every member of this church, is to insist that men, only men, and only qualified men, be set apart for the office and the title of elder or pastor. It requires time, it requires patience, it requires discernment, and it requires a willingness to trust the wisdom of the scriptures. And if we'll follow these principles that Paul's laid out for us, we'll be well on our way to protecting this office. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, Visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.